living room, and uh, she said, well, what's your message going to be at the national conference? And I said, I don't know. What do you think it should be? She answered right away. You find that hard to believe, huh? She said, loving your job in ministry. And as soon as she said it, I thought, that's it. I said, I'm not sure what it means, but that's the message. <laughs> and then I said, do you got a verse? Because that's always what I ask people. Give me a verse. I got to have a verse, you know. And she, she had it, and she's going to share it with you. And I said, read that verse to me again. And I got pumped up. So we're going to do a little three-part thing. I'm going to share then she's going to come and share, then I'm going to share, okay? But I want to talk to you about loving your job in ministry. Now, I don't know that this is necessarily an inspirational message, but I think it's a focused message. And I think um, my heart is, after having the incredible ministry, aren't we just so grateful for all the people that ministered this week? Let's thank them again, amen, everybody. I mean... I mean, I feel like a spoiled kingdom rich kid. You know what I mean? I, I feel like I'm riding in a Rolls Royce of God's glory, you know? Uh, praise the Lord. Maybe a Bentley. But anyway, they have more horsepower. But anyway. Uh, so I want, I want to talk about loving your job in ministry. So let's go to Ephesians 4. You know this passage, but I'm going to start here, okay? And I want to challenge your paradigm a little bit tonight. I want to challenge some of your charismatic cliches that you've heard. And I think, I believe that it may affirm some divine suspicions in you, okay? <laughs> that may hopefully help your focus. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work. Underline the word work. We're going to talk about work tonight. For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now this word work is a very interesting word. In the Greek, do you know what it means? Work. Exactly. Okay. It means the, the forced the, the word work really means the force to move something. So you know you're working when you hit resistance. Think about that. You're digging a ditch. You're climbing a ladder. You're pulling your tote and you're shoving. That's where you are meeting resistance, okay? So he's talking here about the work of the ministry. Now, it's interesting. Jesus in Matthew 9 is in the middle of revival. Everybody's getting healed. Demons are being cast out. Jesus walks out of the meeting. He's sad about it. Ironically, we would have been thrilled, you know, and he says he's sad because there were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, listen. Here is the Lord's solution to his church. Here's what he says, right? Pray ye the Lord of the harvest, Matthew 9, right? Because what? The harvest is plentiful. Say it. The harvest is plentiful. Quit confessing that you have special demons in your neighborhood. Stop it. Okay? The gospel is more powerful, all right? The harvest is plentiful. If you start preaching some kind of remnant mentality that is you for or no more, and your people believe that, they're never going to invite anybody to church. They're never going to share their faith because they're not going to believe anybody's going to get saved. Okay? The harvest is now, present tense, the word of God is quick and sharp and powerful than any two-edged sword. Say it with me. The harvest is plentiful. God adds to his church daily. Amen? That's what the Bible teaches us. So the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We do not have a harvest problem. We have a work problem. Okay? We have a work problem. Jesus already told us through the Apostle Paul that he put gifts of ministry in the church to accomplish the work of service. Now, I've actually heard it taught that those gifts don't do the work. They just tell other people to do the work. Wrong. You do the work to multiply the work. 
You're not in ministry of any sort so that you don't do it. You're in ministry of some sort so that you multiply the work. You don't escape the work. You, you're the example. You're, you're the leader, okay? You're the progenitor of the work. And I, I want to say this to you. Uh, he, it's interesting what Jesus didn't say. Now, here's, here's, here's where we'll get some charismatic stirring. Jesus didn't say, the harvest is plentiful and you're not praying enough. Do we pray enough? Probably not. That's another subject. He didn't say the harvest is plentiful and you're not giving enough. Could we give more? I'm sure we could. He said the harvest is plentiful. We have a labor problem. We do not have enough people that are actively engaged on a daily basis. I'm not talking about a flurry of activity on Sunday morning. That service, it's good, it's needed, but that's to be a launching pad, not a lily pad where you stop and you croak, right? Okay, so we got to understand that. So I want to suggest this to you. Loving your job in ministry is important to love what you're doing. To love what you're doing, you have to love working. Ministry is work, okay? And I will go this far. Having a this is my job mentality is not unhealthy as I've heard it suggested. If you are employed by God, that's your job. You know, when you say you have a job, you're validating your task. If you don't have a job, you're invalidating your task. Our job is to stand with Christ and be joint heirs with him and build the church with him. Our job is the great commission. Our job is to make disciples, amen? And in all those things, there is work that has resistance to it. And we have to love that. We've got to love the fact that God gave us a job. Now, I, you know, I like to be practical, so let me just throw three things. I think we have them on the screen here. I'm just going to throw three things at you that kind of define if you've got a job or not. All right. This is how you know. Okay. So when you're discipling people and, or you're looking at yourself, if you have a job, that means you're on a schedule. That means you have a time in a place where you go to work. Okay. There's no other enterprise in the world. Hear me. There's no other vocation in the world that does their job when they get around to it. There's no other vocation that would ever prosper is when I have some leftover time, I'll do it. Okay? So there's a schedule. There's a time. There's a place. There, there, is, there is a structure to doing a job. There is a priority of organizing our thoughts and our energy and our talent and our time to get the job done. We show up for work, okay? If you don't do that, what will happen is the tyranny of the urgent will become your Lord and not your vision. You will just be moved by everything blowing around you instead of working against the resistance. So when I get around to it is not exactly a job, okay? The second thing it does is that there's accountability that has a product or a service, right? When someone says, I have a job, we say, what do you do or what do you make? It's, it's kind of one or the other, right? You're, you're, you're offering a product. You're off what is ours? Ours is making disciples to make it simple, okay? So are we employed in making disciples? Is that our job? Our job is not having great church services. Our job is not paying the bills. Our, not, our job is not keeping people from leaving the church. Our job isn't even getting new people to come to the church. Woo. God doesn't need more spectators right now. He's looking for workers. Our job that we're employed to do, Jesus said it, is making disciples. So everything we do, we've got to be able to draw a line to are we reproducing people that can work? Not just people that are spiritual consumers. We love them. We embrace them. And if we got a room full of them, we're still going to look for the one disciple. Right? Can I have an amen there? Okay, thank you very much. And the third one is, if you have a job, what do you do? You invest in yourself. This is what I do. I'm a bricklayer. I'm going to go to bricklaying school, 
right? I'm going to find out what the, what the newest mortar is that I can use in freezing temperatures. I'm going to, I'm going to drop the chalk, the chalk line. I'm going to get me a laser. I'm going to buy me some new tools, right? You can tell your job attention in ministry to how much you're willing to invest in yourself personally and tools you're willing to do, books you're willing to buy, courses you're willing to take, conferences you're willing to go to, prayer meetings that you're going to, whatever it's going to be, that you see this as God working you because you know what? I got a job to do. So much of what we do in the church is right, but it has the wrong focus. Pastor Rick really hit it on the head the other night. It, it, it becomes about personal edification rather than building the church. Personal edification is a step to discipleship to build the church. And if we keep that focus, we create selfish people that can speak in tongues. Okay? And that's, and that's, and that's not the goal. Okay, I'm going to do one scripture here, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to turn it over to Penny in just a minute. Now, look at this verse, okay? Look at 1 Corinthians 15.10. I had to throw a grace scripture in here, so you buy the book. But anyway, <clears throat> by the grace of... Now, watch this. Watch this, because here's one of these misconceptions. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. How do I know... That the grace of God is not in vain in my life. I want you to see this. But I labored. You don't labor to get grace, but when you get grace, you labor. Did you hear what I said? You don't labor to get grace. Jesus did that. But when you get grace, you did the same thing that Jesus did. You do something, you do something with it. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. The evidence of somebody that is walking in his grace is that they produce works. You don't get grace by works, but when you get grace, you produce works. Okay? Read the Bible. All right? So what I'm telling you is God wants you to love your job. He wants you to embrace the whole job that you're doing. He wants you to see it as a job, to see it as a mission, to see it as a mandate, to have a schedule, to do it at a place, to do it at a time, to invest in yourself. Absolutely. Uh, Ironically... I think in the ministry, and I, and I mean that from every sense, not just fivefold, wherever you're serving ministry, ironically, I think we actually undervalue our work and overvalue our words. I mean, I believe in preaching, obviously. I'd be pretty sad if I didn't because I'd be wasting a lot of my life. Are you with me? But I think somehow, some way, there's almost a mysticism that if we can string the right sentences together, that is going to stop us or save us from actually having to roll up our sleeve and put our mud boots on and go do something. All right? And as a result of that, I think we actually underplay or undervalue our work, the efforts that are required. We discount them. And if we discount them, you know what happens? We won't charge other people to follow us to do them. They won't see that as a privilege. And then we overestimate our words. We intellectualize Christianity instead of making it a supernatural experience that causes us to go out and do supernatural things. Amen. So God wants us to love our job. Come on up, hon. Thank you. Hi. It's been awesome to be with you guys for these few days. Hi, Gargi. <laughs> I'm going to share from my perspective here. It's a little bit <clears throat> changing tracks just a tad. But um, this is what was on my heart whenever he asked me that question and I gave him what I thought he should talk about for his message. He said, oh, well, you can help me. I said, all right. So 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, and listen to the language here. This is so cool. This is my language. So... Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. How cool is that? That is so cool. And to me, 
This is the key that takes ministry from the mindset of just work to pleasure. If we're able to comprehend this mindset and to see what we do and the job that we do with ministry from this perspective, it becomes so much fun. And you know, for me, being in the ministry has been enjoyable. Sometimes I feel guilty because I'm always going around going, I, I love being in the ministry. And I know some people, you know, it's been hard. And I'm not saying it hasn't been hard for us. But I just have loved every minute of it. And I think part of it is God has been painstakingly teaching me how to live out this verse for a lot of years. It's been hard work. Have Keith and I been betrayed and hurt and misunderstood and lost beloved friends? Yes, we have. Has God kept us from closing our hearts and becoming cynical? Yes, he has. Hallelujah. And I'm just going to share a couple things that he has shown us in order to keep us from closing our hearts. The first one is radically pursuing a heart free of offense, hurt, and fear. And I'm just telling you, whether you're in the ministry, whether you're involved in whatever part in the church, there are chronic opportunities to be offended and to be hurt. And I mean, when you love people and you invest your life in people for maybe 10, 15, 20 years, and then they just leave, and you're like, wait a minute, what did I do? I don't understand what happened. And they're like, nah, move it on. That's, that hurts. And when you're just laying down your life and you have to deal with this kind of stuff on a very regular basis, it hurts. But if you want to be able to do what he was talking about in Thessalonians, that people are dear to you and that you give them yourself and your heart, we have to be radical about pursuing a heart free of offense. You know, I have come to find out in the last little while, and I even wrote about it in my book, there were hurts in me and offenses and even unforgiveness that I was kind of clueless about. I didn't even realize because... I had hidden it in apathy. I was like, "Yeah, I'm good, you know. And I shared that with some folks that I had a friend who had, had a mental checklist of everybody that had hurt her. And she would say, she told me one time, she was sharing this story with me. She was in her 20s. And she said, every time someone hurts me or offends me or rejects me, I put a little check mark by their name. And she said, they're kind of dead to me in a sense. She said, they're just like superfluous to my life. And she said, you know what? I'm real nice to them. I tease them, I fuss with them, I carry on with them, I compliment them, but there's a check mark by their name. And she said, there's only two people left that do not have a check mark by their name. And you know what? We have to be careful. We have to be careful when <clears throat> we're in the ministry that we're not all gregarious on the outside and loving and doing our job and just doing it all. But inside, we're like, mm, got them at arm's length. Just holding back just a bit, you know, not, not, get, not letting them in too close. I got to watch out for myself. I got to guard myself. And I, I have a little test. These are symptoms that your heart is not free of offense. This is a heart that has, a, a, you, you're still dealing with some offense. If you have avoidance toward people, <clears throat> if you look at people with disdain, if you are critical of people, even with your husband or your wife, who you think that's your safe place, but yet your heart is critical, you're just like, I'm going to lay this out of what I really think about those people. If you are irritated or annoyed at their voice or their presence, that means you still have some issues. That means there's probably lurking inside some unforgiveness of some sort or another. It might not be blatant. It might not be obvious. You might not be shouting and yelling at them. But there's some walls going on that we have to be willing to tear down. And as Christians, we have to be committed to radically tear down those walls in our lives. We can never become content right. with having two, three, five, seven, ten, a hundred people with check marks by their name. We can't ever be okay with that. You know what? You can't fake a free heart. You'll give it away. People can see it and they can sense it. 
People know when we're holding ourselves back and they know when we really love them unreservedly. We can't fake it. And I've, I've talked to people, I've talked to people in ministry that are hurting and I get why you're hurting. You know, there's been a lot of betrayal. There've been a lot of hard things that have happened, but that doesn't give us an excuse. And we still have to find a way to no longer hold back. There's a verse in Acts, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it says, Paul said, I strive always to have a conscience that is clear both with God and with man. And that's what I want my testimony to be. That with every single person in any sphere of influence that I have, whether they've left the church, whether they've been really mean to me, whether they've talked really bad about Keith and I or not, I want to have a clear conscience with them. And whatever that looks like for me, I am going to try to do that. I'm going to find a way to get clear with those people. I do not adhere to the statement that I love the people I pastor, I just don't like them. What book in the Bible is that found in? What book is it found that I love people, I just don't like them? I don't think that's how Jesus was, do you? And we have to learn to not just love people, but we have to like them too. And again, people know when you like them. They can tell if you like them. I also do not adhere to believing that we can't be friends with people in our church. And here's how I see it. If Jesus called us friends, how can we say, you know what, they're kind of on a different level, can't really be friends with them. Now, does that mean you don't have discretion or wisdom or discernment in how you handle those relationships? No, of course you do. But like to me, friendship is about a heart posture. It's not about I'm going to go to the mall with you every week and hang out and I'm going to tell you all my business and I'm going to call you up and, you know, we can have coffee every day. You know, I just I'm just available 24. That's not what friendship is to me. Friendship means an open heartedness. Friendship means an embracing heart that people look at you and they go, she has room for me in her life. That doesn't mean she's going to hang out with me all the time. That doesn't mean, you know, she's going to tell me all the business about her family life, that means her heart is open to me. She's embracing. To embrace means to enclose and encircle in the arms, to accept, to press to the bosom in token of affection. I think that's what we should look like. I think, don't you think people in the world have enough stuff to deal with that if they come to the church and people are cynical, people hold them at arm's length, People are like, you know, that's fine. Glad you come to my church. Another, you know, money in the offering. Another person on my roll. But you know what? You're just the person in the church. They have to see someone that's embracing. And that's who, that's who Jesus is. The Bible talks about Jesus relentlessly pursuing us. And I want to be like him. I love this verse from, uh, it's Romans 12, 9. It's from the Message Bible. It says, love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Love from the very center of who you are. Don't fake it. So that means in order not to fake it, every single offense, every single one, every single hurt, every single cynicism that you have towards someone, you got to find a way to get with God and get that right. That's not easy, and it takes time. It takes, I have a journal, and I know we, we went through a church split a while back, and I'll tell you what, I was mad. I was mad at people for a while, probably for at least two or three weeks, and I wrote them all letters saying exactly why I was mad at them, and then I burned them all. <laughs> but you know what? I didn't just go, I didn't just make a mental ascent and go, Okay, fine, I forgive them. No, I, I got with God like David did, and I said, look, they did this, 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 and this, and I am angry. They betrayed us, they hurt us, they lied about us, but God, I choose. I choose to forgive them. I choose to release them. I choose to bless them in Jesus' name. And then when I had occasion to see them, one lady, I saw, I saw her at Walmart, and I knew she was real mad at me because she had left the church and all that. And I saw her, she saw me, and she's like, trying to make her way away. I got my little cart and I ran after her. 
And I cornered her. And I said, I said, hi, Diane. And she goes, oh, oh, hi, you know. And so I ended up saying, how you doing? What have you been up to? And I, they had started another church and all that. And she told me about uh, her husband's health and all that. And we ended up hugging. And she, I told her I loved her. And she said, I love you too. And you know what? We haven't seen each other since, except I saw her a, a month ago at a funeral. And we just picked right back up, and it was great. But in so much as it's in my power, I am going to fix it. If I can do it, I'm going to do it. And I think, again, if Jesus relentlessly pursues us, let's, let's be those same people. Friendship and love with people and with people in the church is the it factor for moving from duty and mission to passion and happiness. I want to love what I do. I don't want to just have a dutiful. I, you know what? In pastoral ministry and any, any ministry, I worked hard. I was gone a lot. I was busy a lot. We were doing things for people. We were helping them on a personal level. But it was fun. And I was happy as a little bee doing it. I just loved it. But it's because of friendship. It's because I saw those people as my friends, not just somebody that I had a job to help. It was my responsibility. It was my duty. I got to show up. I got to be there. No, I liked them. They were my friends. I liked being with them. When I saw them, it's like coming here to see you guys. Is that a chore? No. It's a joy. And you're, our, you're my friends. That's why I can stand up here and talk to you when, you know, otherwise I'd be a nervous wreck. You're my friends. You're not my audience, you're my friends. And I just think that is the thing we want to look for. Let's see, where am I at here? Love is demonstrative. This, this whole section where Paul talks about being so affectionate and all that, like this is Paul we're talking about. Did you know in that same chapter he compares himself to a nursing mother? How crazy is that? Paul, who we think of as kind of stern, kind of intense, he calls himself a nursing mother. Now that, you cannot do that from an aloof posture, can you? You got to get up close, personal. You got to risk. You got to be taking some risks to be able to do that. He also talks about he's a father toward those people. Again, you have to risk a lot, and you have to put yourself out there, and you have to be healed enough to, to be able to do those things well. You can't fake that. You can't fake loving the people in your church. Whether you're a pastor or a pastor's wife or whether you're in the body in some other ministry in some other area, you can't fake it. you got to get right so that we can do that. Love pursues. Love is affectionate. I've had people tell me, I'm not affectionate, I don't like affection. I'd say, well, you better get affectionate. <laughs> because God is affectionate. Yeah, and we, yeah. people need affection. Yeah. They need attention. They need to have someone wrap their arms around them and love them. It's, it's an innate thing. I don't know if you saw my little grandkids sit up here. They just want to be hugged. They want to be loved. They want to have your, their head on your shoulder. Little Penelope, she kept saying to me, she's sitting up here, she's whispering in my ear going, Papa's a pastor. Papa's a pastor. She told me that about a hundred times. <laughs> but they long for that affection and attention, and so do the people around you. Love listens to people with a desire to actually understand, not just to give them a smart answer. All right, all right. I feel like people have lost the art of listening nowadays in many ways. They don't know how to just sit down, tune everybody else out, look someone in the eye, for however long it takes, hear their heart and what they're actually saying. Not what your answer you're going to give. Don't even worry about your answer. Try to figure out what they're actually saying, what's going on in their life. We need to learn how to listen. Love makes people feel safe and valuable. It's kind. It's not bossy. It's not about us putting everybody in line, straightening them all out. Yeah, there'll be kindness and there'll be truth, and we're going to have to bring truth to people, absolutely. But it better be done in kindness. We better not be hard and harsh and intense and condescending. We got to walk in kindness. I wrote this statement. It's kind of a strong statement. But I said, if we are too insecure to love fearlessly or to learn how to, we are most likely in the wrong profession. 
Think about that for a minute. If we're too insecure to love fearlessly or to learn how to love fearlessly, we're probably in the wrong profession. And make no mistake about it, I am not equipped by my first birth to love fearlessly, not even a little bit. I told the ladies yesterday that many of you know Helena Kelly, who was a mentor in my life, and she, she called me one day to talk to me, and, and I said to her, I just feel like something's missing in my life. And she said, yeah, God actually spoke to me. He said, the missing thing in your life is love. You don't know how to love anybody. I was like, all righty then. <laughs> Should I be offended? <laughs> and it's true. I mean, I didn't even love people. I didn't like people. And she said, but God's going to grow that into the greatest area in your life. That's going to be, he's going to do it. He's going to teach you how. He's going to walk you through the hard places. And it has, I have eight kids. I'm married to someone very strong. Do you think it's been easy? No. I mean, Keith is a little mild-mannered little fella, but (laughs) it's been challenging to learn how to love and to forgive and to get rid of every single offense in my life. It has not been easy. But you know what? I've been through the Isaiah 61 infirmary. You been through that? I was afflicted, but I got some good news. And just like Darlene was talking about the word of God, the word of God is good news. You know what? When I've been fearful of hanging out with people or loving well or or going after relationships, I, I speak the word. I say, you know what? Thank you, Father, that you surround me with favor as with a shield. Thank you, Father, that my gift makes room for me. I don't go, oh, here I am, Penny, on the spot. Here I am, I'm so confident. I've just got this all together. Aren't I wonderful? No, I go, ooh, I don't have that much. But thank you, God. You surround me with favor as with a shield. No matter where I go, your favor is all around me. And and you got this. I was brokenhearted. But my wounds, God took my wounds very seriously. He didn't schluff them off. He painstakingly took time to heal me. And he's committed to healing every one of our wounds if we let him in. And you know how we do that sometimes? We let other people in. We open up our heart and bear our frailties to other people instead of protecting our reputation, our ministry. Sometimes you got to really lay it bare. I've been to a Christian counselor. I've, I've sought out help from Brother Rod and Mary. I've gotten help from Pastor Rick and Natalie. I've gotten help from all kind of people. And I just told them like it is. This is what's going on in here. This is what I really look like. This is what my fears are about. But you know what? If you want to love well, you're going to have to bear it all. And you can't be about, well, you know, I just don't want anybody to know. I just, you know, they think such and such of me. They really look up to me. Well, find somebody, the right person, not just anybody, the right person that you can go to and bear your heart. And you know, I I like what uh, Brother Joe did. He had a a person in his church that his family also was able to go to. Sometimes in ministry, our families are hurting. You know, they, they can take on those wounds too, but he provided, he said, look, Karen, you can go to this person anytime you want. You can even talk about me if you want to, because we need a place to be open and honest and to bear our souls. Sometimes our marriage depends on that. Sometimes our family depends on it and certainly our ministry depends on that. So we have to be willing to go after those things. I was a prisoner of insecurity, but his truth and his word opened the prison door for me. Fighting hard, not just like, boom, you're good, Penn. No, fighting, 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 fighting with the word fighting with this presence, fighting with looking up at God and saying, you know what? I live under your smile. I live under your favor. That's who I am. That's how I'll live. I'm not going to live like little old insecure Penny because I live under the smile and the favor of God. And so he, he, he let me out of that prison. He's taken me every single day further out of that prison. I was covered in ashes, but he called me his crown of beauty. So are we willing to be completely and utterly vulnerable and exposed in order to be healed enough to love fearlessly? Are we willing? 
Are we willing to go there? You know what's interesting? Sometimes we want the people in our church to go there, but we don't want to go there. We need to set the example. We need to really be willing to just go after it. And I'm just going to close with this as a little quote from my book. It said, for those in ministry, the willingness to continually examine our hearts in regard to these things is not optional. If we have developed skepticism toward people, we cannot truly love and care for them or pastor effectively. We can pretend, but my motto is, you can't impart without giving your heart. Jesus opened his heart to those he ministered to and he called them friends even after they betrayed him. So when we learn to give ourselves away without fear, we learn to look like Jesus. That's where freedom happens and that's where loving your job happens. Love you guys. Thank you, Penny. Uh, we rented a big house while we're here, and we got uh, several members of our family with a daughter and a daughter-in-law. I think we what do we got? Like seven kids running around. You know, it's you've probably seen some run around here. And I got home this afternoon or, or early this morning, and you know, you, I was just watching both my daughter and my daughter-in-law just like changing diapers, wiping noses, you know. And uh, I don't know that they necessarily love that. But they love all that is beyond that. So what Penny was talking about in loving your job, listen, you can't say I love my job, but I don't want to deal with this. You have to embrace that. All of us in whatever vocation we're in or we were in before ministry or going, I, I would venture to say, even if you work for yourself, you, you might not even like the boss, but I don't know. You, you, there's probably something in your job that doesn't exactly float your boat. And, and what my, I guess my heart message here tonight is, is if you love the big picture, you understand there's parts of your job that you don't have to enjoy that still bring pleasure to God as you do those things. I think we need a 30,000-foot perspective sometime instead of a 30-foot perspective. And that includes problem people. That includes, like Penny was talking about, insecurities and shortcomings and, 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 and not being able to handle it all. And, and if you've been in ministry for five minutes, you've had that experience. So, you know, when you love your job, that doesn't mean that you just love, oh, I just love, you know, I love that phone call I get. I, I love that, that aggravating person. I, 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 I just love being in over my head in a strategic, I just love, I'm just looking forward to just being totally telling everybody, I don't know what to do next. I just love this. That's not how it is, okay? Uh, just like that mom doesn't have to love it, you know? And let me just throw this in here. You know, we're living in a place where to be a leader in any venue requires just such multiple skill sets to do it right that most of us, very few of us, I mean, you might be that one percenter, and I applaud you, but remember this. Jesus had people he gave one talent to. Jesus had people he gave two talents to. And Jesus had people he gave five talents to. You are only responsible for the talent he gave you to use it 100%. And my feeling in leadership is this. There are things I'm not good at, but what I don't want to do is discount those things and say they're not important. Let's say most of you have a car, I would guess. I would say most of you probably don't fix your own cars, right? But when the car breaks down, you don't say, you know, I'm not good at that, so I'm just going to walk from now on. I want you to think about this. What you do is you say, I'm buying me a new car. I'm calling a tow truck. I'm calling the guy I bought the car. You're going to do something even because you see that is necessary to your vision and productivity of life. There are things in ministry that I'm not good at, but they're still necessary. So I'm either going to acquire it or I'm going to hire it. All right. 
okay? I'm going to go and get that thing. I'm not going to discount it, even though I may not feel like that's my particular skill set because I want to do my job well of making disciples. And if that thing is necessary to making disciples, then even if I'm not good at it, even if I don't like it, I'm either going to acquire it or I'm going to hire it. And I read books. I watch things in ministry. And people say, well, you know, you just don't do it. And so we have lopsided churches because there's a wrong expectation. And that's really where I'm going at tonight. If you got the wrong expectation, you're going to have inbred frustration all the time. Because most disappointments, I want you to hear this. Most disappointments in ministry, not all. I don't want to say disappointments. I want to change that word. Most discouragements, because there's a difference between discouragement and disappointment. I'm disappointed all the time. I mean, we had $117,000 in a bob off. I say, man, we could have got 120. <laughs> I'm not greedy. I just, I'm just like, God, we should have brought a bigger glass. You know what I mean? You know, if there's 100 people in church, I want 200. There's, there's 200, I want 300. If 50 people got saved, I want 60 people to get saved. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. If, by the way, if you're never disappointed, it means you never have any expectations. But listen, discouragement is when you lose your courage to lead discouragement. And a lot of discouragement happens when people have the wrong expectations. They think this doesn't happen in church or that won't happen in church. And it does happen. Okay. They haven't read the new Testament. I mean, think about it. If God was trying to trick people into ministry, he just would have taken most of the Bible out. I mean, I mean, if I was, I mean, I wouldn't tell those stories on the people who were following me. I mean, that David and Bathsheba thing, I mean, that's bad news, honey. I mean, that New Testament thing in the Corinthian church with the stepmother, I mean, I mean, who wants to go to that church? Are you with me? I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't put those things in there. But God is encouraging us, I believe, to go ahead and change the diapers and keep your eye on walking her down the aisle someday. See, you talk about vision, that's vision. Okay? You know, I have a saying, it's very simple as this. Until you're willing to do what you're not called to do, you're never going to be empowered to do what you are called to do. Remember that saying, Daniel? We were, Daniel was with me for a, a few years as a worship leader. We had this youth ministry we traveled all over the country with uh, called Team Redeem. Coming back to take back what the devil stole, we, we'd take about 20 kids for seven weeks the whole summer. That's how he met, that's how he met Brietta Sinclair. She was on the team. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. I never charged you fully for that, but anyway. But, but I, I taught, I was... I, but we would, we had some, we just had out, outrageous fun times together. So I'm teaching that to these guys. I'm saying, listen, if you're called to ministry, there are going to be times where you're going to have to do what you're not called to do because you believe so much in what you are called to do. And if you think about it in ministry, guys, listen, every day almost in pastoral ministry and any kind of leadership, you're teaching Sunday school, working in the parking lot, there's going to be something you're not particularly called to do. But to get to where you're called, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and do it. That's called work. Yes, sir. So I taught this, and so then afterwards, you know, then we, we, we broke up, and I'm up working on the van. I'm putting brakes on the van so we can travel around the country. And Daniel comes up, and I'm, I'm banging my knuckles. I'm trying to beat this busted rotor off with a hammer, you know. And uh, Daniel's leaning over and said, pesky, pesky. He said, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. You, you know, until you're willing to do what you're not called to do, you can't do what you're called to do. And I looked around, I got grease on my face, my knuckles were bleeding. I said, Daniel, he said, do you think I feel called to be working on these brakes? <laughs> the answer was no. <laughs> but if I didn't do it, we don't roll down the highway. So if you have an expectation, listen to me, I, I really feel like this message is for people that may be considering ministry, like what is my next step? I'm not trying to discourage you, I'm trying to clear some blockades in your thinking that might stumble you as you go forward. Listen, it's okay, you're gonna get dirty diapers, but someday you're gonna get to walk her down the aisle. Don't have a wrong expectation. Have a biblical expectation. Believe that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that he can overcome these things. Hallelujah. Look at 
Hebrews 6, 6.10. So God is not unjust. How many people believe that? I mean, that's the nature of God. He's immute. It's called immutability. Okay. God is not unjust. So as to forget your work. <laughs> what is God not going to forget? Your great ideas. No. Your intentions. Your loving intentions. No. God's not saying that was a, I want to bless that intention. <laughs> and you know what? You have people in your church that you've counseled. I want you to think about this. They are frustrated with God because they think God should bless their intentions. I meant well. I thought well. I didn't do well. Right? Forget your work and the love. For work and love which you have shown toward his name. Now, I like this next phrase. I want you to watch this. In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Now, when I read that, I see somebody that's being guided through some obstacles. Do you? Having ministered and still ministering. Somebody that started ministering and didn't quit when Sister Sandpaper rubbed them the wrong way. Amen? Hello? Having ministered to the saints. And they're still ministering to the saints. There are people, listen. All the leadership academic journals tell us there is a brain draining in the ministry. We have people quitting left and right that once minister to the saints, that are no longer ministering to the saints. And, and, and I believe, you know, maybe some of them weren't called. Okay. But I think part of it is they didn't understand the work of the ministry. They did not understand the work of the ministry. I mean, Jesus had bad media. Yeah. Come on. He had Judas. Listen, I was, this is a true story. You can't make this stuff up. I'm in a pastor's meeting. Okay. And of course, I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to mind my own business. It's not my meeting. I didn't do anything. I didn't ask to say anything. The light turns to me, and the guy said, well, Keith, let's talk about pro-life. Because okay. I'm that pro-life guy. And another guy jumps up, and this is what he says. I don't know this guy from a can of paint. I really don't know any of these people, hardly. He says, this is what he says, with a straight face. Jesus wouldn't want us to do anything controversial. That's what he said. Now, listen, can I, can I just tell you something? That guy is probably not in the ministry today. Because what a false presupposition. I said to a guy later, that's right. Jesus didn't die on a cross. He died in a big family hug. Because Jesus never said anything controversial. It's the work of the ministry. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, even the suffering of the cross. I come to do the work of my father. What did Jesus come to do? The work of my father. He didn't come to give us some great sayings. He didn't come to give us cheap grace. He came to give us real grace. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Mama's done. The Bible talks about not growing weary. I want you to think about that admonition. It's a great, again, word study. Not growing weary. Well, how does anything grow? It needs nutrition to grow. Right? I watch people feed themselves weariness. Mm -hmm. Listen. Being tired can usually be healed by a good night's sleep and a steak. I mean, I've been tired. Travel all day, a night in a jail cell on a hard mat, whatever it is. I've been tired. And that's easily healed, but weariness is spiritual. Hear me. I want you to hear me. Weariness is emotional. Do not grow weary. Don't feed 
weariness. Don't keep telling yourself, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen, or that shouldn't be happening. Well, maybe it shouldn't be, but that's why it's called work. God rested, hear me, on the seventh day. He wasn't tired. He didn't do six days. Oh, that was really hard. <laughs> Listen, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Rest is spiritual. You'll never have rest in ministry by the cessation of work. You have rest in ministry, listen to me, by understanding with perception that what you're doing is good. So when you have a hard day, and nothing seemed to go right. You say, you know what I did? I, it was good. I honored God today. And I had a good day. I like to tell this story. Years ago, we were in Pittsburgh when we were still living in Pittsburgh. We were right in front of the abortion clinic one really one of those cold, bitter mornings. And people were making certain gestures at us and calling us names, Penny and I. And we're driving home and I was a little silent. I wanted to lay hands on people suddenly. And Penny says, you know what we did today? And I thought, yeah, we froze our tushy off. That's what we did today. This is what she said. You know what we did today? So she said, we loved our neighbor. That's what I'm talking about. It was changing diapers, but we loved our neighbor. That's a perspective. That's an understanding we have to have, have on what we signed up for. Okay? That's, that's the work of the ministry. It's not the cessation of activity. It's understanding that if we're doing good and we're doing right, when I lay my head at bed at night, no matter if everything went sideways, if I honored God, if I stood for righteousness, if I walked in truth, then I can have rest and not be weary. I believe there are weary people here tonight, and God really wants to help you. He wants to show you that you're pleasing him, that you're blessing him. It might be diaper season, but wedding season is coming. Hallelujah. Amen. Don't grow weary. Don't feed it, weed it in Jesus' name. Mm. I'm almost done. To love your job in ministry... You have to be willing to take the responsibility for what God has called you to do. Now, I'm going to tell you, we're in a cultural war over that issue. We live in a rights-based culture right now, not a responsibility-based culture. That's what's flipped in our culture, okay? This is a powerful word. Put that slide up there. I want you to think about this word. Response-ability. Do you get it? Response, my response is my ability. Not my skill set. My response, uh, how I respond to a bad situation. How I respond to a good situation. How do I respond to a blessing? How do I respond to a cursing? How do I respond? How do I respond to the Spirit of God? That's my greatest ability, how I'm responding. Responsibility. And in the kingdom, there is a kingdom equation. You will never have authority where you have not embraced responsibility. And one of the reasons the church lacks authority in our culture is we have not embraced the responsibility God has given us to be salt and light. The two go together. God is looking for responsible people, not just gifted people. One more verse. 2 Corinthians 11.28. I want to just take a few minutes here with you, okay? Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure, burden, load, depending on the translation, on me of concern for all the churches. 
Now, you know the text of this. Paul says, you know, twice I was shipwrecked, three times I was striped, two times. And, and I've read all that. And as I was getting my heart ready for this message the other day, I was home by myself and I just was flipped it open. And I was reading it. And I got to tell you, it was like I'd never read this passage before in my life. I just always plowed through it like it, it was a stat sheet, like reading somebody's resume. And I thought, what this man suffered so that we would be here today. You know, I'm going to leave here tonight and get in my Lexus. I'm going to drive to a place that has air conditioning. Now, I don't feel guilty about that. But how am I going to use my privilege is the question. Are you with me? And literally, as I started reading that, I just, I, I, I was like getting, I got emotional. <laughs> my, my spirit started welling up. But I want to reference this to Paul walked in an authority and a revelation because he was willing to take this responsibility on besides this daily, that's called work. Daily comes on me the care of the church. I'm telling you, God cares about the church. We should care about the church. Amen. I used to say to my leaders, listen, only two qualifications for being leadership here. You got to love God and love people. <laughs> and then we'll fill in the blanks after that. But if we can't get those right, nothing else matters anyway, right? It's interesting, by the way. I think we forget the text here. The text, if you go back to verse uh, 13, is Paul is identifying false apostles. And then he gives his resume. And what he's, you know what he's really saying? He's saying false apostles don't take responsibility. They just preach and leave. Wow. They're not there when things go wrong. They're not there when things go sideways. I believe that if we will embrace the Great Commission, if we will embrace making disciples, if we will embrace taking our culture back, that there will be an authority that will come on us that will far supersede our gifts. And we will see God intervene supernaturally. I believe that with all my heart. I believe it starts with responsibility to the calling that is on our life. Hallelujah. I'm just going to end with this statement. Some of you guys have heard me say this more than once. Because I hear people say the opposite. That's probably where I got it. I've heard people say, I didn't sign up for this. You ever heard somebody say that? My mantra is, this is exactly what I signed up for. Hell's breaking loose. I'm your man. God, this is what I signed up. I didn't say I liked it. This is what I, you know, when a soldier goes to war, you know, he doesn't get all prepped up and get his blues on and get his gun and gets his shoe and then war breaks out and go, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> What'd you sign up for, sweetheart? You know, we had a real dilemma. We had one of our churches go into severe moral failure and it was heartbreaking. And I gathered our team around us. You know what I said to them? Guys, this is what we signed up for. We're going to rub the devil's nose in this in the days to come. We are the right people for the right job at the right time, and the devil's not going to get the glory over this. This is what we signed up for. That doesn't mean I like changing diapers, but it's what I signed up for because I want to walk down the aisle. I want to see a glorious church. I want to be connected to the bride. Amen? That's what I signed up for. How about you? What I signed up for is worth doing all the things I was never called to do so I could do the things I am called to do in Jesus' name. This is what we signed up for. Hallelujah. We signed up for a move of God. We signed up for a revolution. We signed up for revival. We signed up for reformation. We signed up having the care of the Lord. It's interesting, too, that the word glory means the weight of God. Amen? Stand up with me. Like I said, this wasn't real inspirational, but I think it's got some focus in it. Here's where I want to go tonight. I believe I got a, an instruction from the Lord. If you're here tonight and you have a divine suspicion, 
that maybe you're called to ministry. When I say ministry, everybody's called to serve. I'm talking about being set aside in fivefold ministry. We're not going to ordain anybody. That's your pastor's job. That's, that's your local church's job. But I would like to pray with people tonight so that they would sort that out with the Lord. That you do not, if that is stirring in you, that you just stop waiting on that and say, okay, God, I want an answer. I want an answer. That's okay. Amen. Amen. I didn't soft sell tonight, I don't think, by any stretch of the imagination. Amen. But if there's something in you that says, you know, maybe that's me. God, I'm willing if you're willing. Sometimes that's all it takes. You know, when I got out of Bible school, I was not convinced I'd be in the ministry. I was absolutely convinced I'd never be a pastor. That was for sure. Are you with me? But you know what I said? I said, God, I'll do anything you ask me to do. And if it don't work, I'll be the best church member there ever was. That was my honest heart. That was our heart. just threw ourselves at the mercy of God. If that's you tonight, I would like some of our folks just to pray with you. Not to ordain you, not to lay hands on you, not to confirm a call, but to encourage you to really seek the Lord and offer yourself as a living sacrifice like nothing before to sit down and have a heart conversation with your pastor. Say, what do you see in me and what's the next step for me? If that's you, just slide out of where you're at right now without hesitation, with no compromise, with no fear, and just run up here. And I'm going to ask some of our pastors just to come on up. Any of, any of our NRP pastors, uh, Pastor Rick and Darling, please, please join us. We've got some great couples here.